Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. The truth of Scripture is that God's first desire for all of us is that we would be saved. We're told in John chapter 20, John, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that all of these signs that we are given in the Gospel of John were done so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Savior, and that through Him we can have life and have it have eternal life. We can only have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. The reality is also, though, that God does desire and wants us all, once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, to grow spiritually. Paul gives us this picture of going from a babe in Christ to spiritual maturity there in 1 Corinthians. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Often it is through the circumstances of life that our character, that our faith, that our trust in God are revealed. But it's also through these circumstances that God uses to help us grow. Now in John chapter 6, we come to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. This one is kind of unique because it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. We see an amazing miracle done by Christ, but I don't want you to miss this morning the test and the opportunity for growth in the life of the disciples and in our life today. There are a lot of lessons, and you can go out there and hear a lot of sermons on this passage, and a lot of times we emphasize the actual miracle of Christ, and I I don't want to diminish that this morning, but I don't want you to miss the lessons that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and trying to teach us Uh, this morning. So number one, I want you to see in this passage the setting. Look back with me at John chapter 6 verse 1. The Bible says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. People, the Bible tells us they've seen, they've heard about Jesus and his healings. The multitudes are now following him and they're wanting the same thing that they've seen happen in the lives of others. They want Jesus to heal them, to provide for them, to to bless them. And and the multitudes are constantly there and Jesus is constantly being bombarded. But Jesus and his disciples, they get into the boat and, and they make their way over. But the people saw where he was going and they begin to make their march around the, this, this sea to, to get there to, to meet Jesus. And you'll see as, uh, if you, as you read through Scripture, these people must have had a lot of energy and a lot of endurance because Christ is in a boat making probably a straight across five to six mile trek. And these people are marching around the sea some nine to ten miles, and yet they beat him over there. I mean, they were determined to, to see him and to get him to minister, minister to them. But we notice that Jesus is now, he, he is a popular figure in, in the nation of Israel. 
And this, is, again, is going to create some antagonistic um, confrontations between him and the Jewish leaders. Remember, he healed on the Sabbath day um, and broke man's quote-unquote Sabbath. And, and th they approached him for that. He claimed to be God. And, and, so, and now all of the followers that looked up to these Pharisees and these religious leaders were now leaving them and they were following Jesus. Now, there's two scenarios I want you to see as we continue through our passage here. There's two scenarios that we're going to see here in just a moment. But notice, look with me at verse number five. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Christ saw the, the great company. Now, the, the passage here will reveal to us that there are 5,000 men, and, and so estimates would say with women and children, there's somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people that have made their way around, that have come from the villages and the local towns, and they all want to see Jesus and interact with Jesus. And I think it's interesting, Jesus look, lifted up his eyes. That, that's, a, I think, a very important point. In Mark chapter 6, in Mark's account of this, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, when he lifted up his eyes, he had compassion. He had compassion on them because they were sheep having no shepherd. I, I want you to think about your reaction when you see people that have needs in our community. What, what is our, in our, in our flesh, what is our normal reaction? We see somebody over here, and so instead of lifting up our eyes and seeing the need, what happens? Our head kind of tilts the other way. And we divert our attention as if we can get our eyes off of them, then we, we don't necessarily feel bad about ourselves. We, we can resist having to be involved and in, in, in ministering and seeing how we can help, but we can justify in our mind that we're too busy and, and we don't have time and we have other things to do, and, and so we divert our eyes. But the Bible says Jesus lifted up his eyes. We're not alone in this. I want you to see the difference between the attitude of Jesus and his own disciples. Jesus saw the people and he saw their needs. But as you read the other accounts, and we won't go there, but I hope you'll read them sometimes, the disciples wanted to get rid of the people. In Mark's account, we learn that the disciples told Christ to, to send them away. Tell them to go into the villages and the towns. And tell them to go find their own food and, and take care of their own needs. You see, the disciples saw an inconvenience. They, they saw the needs of the people as being inconvenient. Can I tell you today that serving people where, will rarely be convenient? Serving people will rarely be convenient. And if we truly want to minister for God, if we truly want to impact this world for Christ, if we truly want to see people saved and see people helped, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone and be willing to be inconvenienced for his glory and his honor and the benefit of others. That means we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. Notice what Christ did. He, he lifted up his eyes. He wasn't looking at himself and his needs now and the burden and trial that he was going through. Many times we justify why we don't help people. You don't understand what's happening in my life. You don't understand the problems that I have, the struggles that I have. Why should I help them when I'm going through all these things? Listen, Christ just lost, lost a dear friend and a family member. He's weary and tired from his ministry and now he comes across his boat and here are the people that he left to get away from. They made their way all the way around the sea and, and you know what we would do? We'd roll our eyes. Are you kidding me? Don't you have some, I mean, good, good grief. Go back home already. 
Go look for help from somebody else. I'm tired. I'm weary. And that's really the mindset of the disciples. Send them away. We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to help them. How we see people and our attitude when it comes to service, I believe, shows our level of spiritual maturity. How we see people and our attitude when it comes to helping other people shows our spiritual maturity. Oftentimes, we, the, the people that think they're the most spiritual are the, are the babes in Christ, the most immature, and it comes out by their actions and their attitude when it comes to investing in the lives of other people. Now listen, when it comes to church, hey, we're on the front row. We're singing praises. We're, we're up in the choir. We're singing specials. Hey, we're here to serve. We'll teach a Sunday school class. But actually get involved in the lives of other people and help them with their needs shows truly where we are in our walk with God and in our spiritual growth. We need to be able to see people with the eyes and the mind of Christ. I love 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That word casting literally carries the idea of once and for all. Throw your burden on the Lord and don't continue to carry them. Jesus said, if your yoke is heavy, come unto me. My burden is light. And he cares for you. The psalmist tells us to roll our burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And so Jesus is seeing the multitude, and the disciples are seeing the multitude, and we have two different reactions. So that brings us then to scenario number one. He calls out to Peter, the Bible tells us in verse five, or to Philip, excuse me, in verse number five. And he says, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So scenario number one is Jesus' interaction with Philip. Philip, he tells him, where can we get food? Where can we get food? Now, many believe that Philip was from this area and he would know the towns and the villages and he, he might know where to go get food. But the truth is, Jesus knew what was about to happen. Verse number six. He's not asking Philip, hey, where can we get food? Where can we buy food with the money that we have for all of these people? Because he believed Philip had an answer. What he was doing is he was testing Philip. Jesus asking this question for Philip's sake. He's testing Philip and his faith. And the truth is, God will often test our faith. I heard a, a preacher one time say, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. We often, we don't like to be tested or challenged in our walk with God, and we kind of want to bristle up when we feel like somebody is testing us, and even if it is God himself that is testing us. But he gives Philip a situation, really, that is humanly impossible to solve. So Philip responds to him. We have 200 penny worth, 200 denarii, and this is not, this is not enough. Even if we take all the money that we have, some estimate this is about eight months worth, worth of an average person's salary. Even if we, have, uh, if we take all the money that we have and go out and find somebody that can make this food, we don't have enough to feed upwards to 15, 20,000 people. Often we think in the same manner. You know, we look at a situation and we think there's no way that it can happen. 
There's no way that we can do this. There's no way that, that this is beneficial. Or no, there's no way we should go down this road and, and do this because we look from a human perspective. And sometimes it doesn't make sense and from our perspective. Sometimes it doesn't make sense in dollars and cents. But it makes sense spiritually. Think about missions. Why, why do you send money to missions? Why do you send money to missionaries that you don't see very often, you don't hear from very often? And from a human perspective, we, we want accountability and we want, you know, spreadsheets and we want, you know, receipts given back. And we, you know, and sometimes we just have to step out in faith and say, we're going to send these missionaries and we're going to send them resources or we're going to help them. Why do you send mission teams to, to Reno and, and invest in young people and, and, you know, maybe they won't grow up and be missionaries, but maybe they will. Sometimes we have to just step out in faith and, and be willing to sacrifice and, and trust God. Philip is being tested in the area of his faith, and, and yet he looks at his resources and he says, we don't have enough. And that's often our problem. We look at our resources and we say, we don't have enough. And the interesting thing is Christ is standing right there. The reaction of Philip should have been, we can't do it. But we know you can. You know why we, can, why we know you can do it, Jesus? Because we saw you heal the man at the pool. We've seen you do all of these miracles and heal the sick and the blind. And we've seen you over and over the, the amazing things that you can do because you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. But yet they still have not come to understand that. Philip's faith is tested. And he missed the opportunity. Scenario number two is with Andrew. After Philip answers Christ and he says, we, we don't have enough. Verse number eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother saith unto him, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? So the second scenario is Andrew brings a boy to Jesus and he finds this young boy with five barley loaves and two fishes. But the sad thing is, is he actually shows his doubt in the very next statement. We have five barley loaves. We have two fishes. But really, what is this? What is this among so many? We have this little bit of food. Now, these barley loaves were flat little circles of bread. And this is, this, the barley loaves were the bread of the poor people of that day. You know, the interesting thing about this story is, I was thinking about this this week. And maybe you've thought about this before, maybe you haven't. But I'm picturing Andrew walking amongst the crowd. There's 20,000 or so people. Hey, does anybody have lunch? Hey, you got some food? And, and I'm literally picturing people taking their sack lunch and kind of putting it behind their back. Like I'm literally picturing people, either that or this was the only smart person in the room, in the, in the area thinking, hey, we're going to be out here all day. I better bring a snack because I'm going to get hungry listening to this preacher preach all day long. And it's, it's going to be a long day. And so I'm going to bring some food. So one of the things is true. Probably the first one is true. That's my version of the story anyway. That is not inspired. But I can see Andrew going around and saying, hey, who has what? Maybe nobody else brought food. But there is this little boy that he finds in this little lad and he brings him to Jesus and he says, it's very little. What are we going to do 
with this. Often, I believe we're a lot like Andrew. We see how little we have. We see how little ability, little talent. We see our little resources. We often see our inadequacies. And we say, how can I help? How can I be involved? What truly, what truly can I do? And you know, our problem is, is that we think that the world is run off the big and the spectacular. Hey man, if I could do, if I could do a big thing. Hey, listen, if I could pay your mortgage off, that would be great, wouldn't it? Everybody says amen, amen, right? If I could, you know, if I could buy you a new car, that would be great, that would be big, and that would be splashly. But that's not realistic in everyday life. But you know what? I can pray for you. I can come alongside of you and sit down and have a conversation. I can buy a cup of coffee. I can give you a smile, a kind word. There's so many things that we can do that really make a massive impact in the lives of people. But because it's not the big and splashy thing that's going to get all the attention and, and notoriety, we think, what, what can we do? When sometimes the smallest gesture makes the biggest impact. I, I love the statement, Christ knew. He himself knew what he would do in verse 6. Christ knew what he was going to do. And so we see the scenarios. Okay, Philip, you go buy food. Well, that's, that doesn't work. We don't have enough money. All right, Andrew, here's, here's a little bit of food. Well, that's not enough for everybody. So that brings us to our third and final point, and probably the most important point, the Savior. When the disciples reveal their inadequacies, Christ shows that he truly is adequate. Look back with me at our passage in verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. So we see that Christ takes control. He organizes the group. And in Luke's account, the Bible tells us that he tells them to sit down in groups of 50. And then he takes the bread. If you'll look with me, Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were sat down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. So Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, takes control of the situation. He takes and breaks the, the bread and he blesses it as it was his custom. And then he distributes to the disciples who then go and distribute to everything. And the Bible tells us that they had enough for everybody to be filled. That, the, the picture is there. These people were stuffed. They were glutted there in this passage. And there was enough for 12 baskets of, of leftovers. You know, I'm not a leftover person. I'm not a fish person. So this story really did not help. No, I'm just kidding. I, I can only imagine um, the amazement by, these, by the disciples and by the people as Christ takes control. Some lessons concerning our own lives here. Christ is not limited to our resources. Christ is not limited to our resources and our limited resources. Christ provides over, number two, over and above what we need. And he uses, number three, people to meet the needs of the people. He uses the disciples and gives them opportunity to serve and, and see him work in the lives 
of these people. He wants to use you. He wants to use me in the lives of people. It's amazing to see, but I don't want you to miss what God is doing here. He's testing their faith. He's testing their faith, and he's reminding them. It's not about what they have. It's not about their abilities. It's not about who they are. You see, the Pharisees are running all around Israel, and it's all about us, and it's about our law and our ways, and, 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 and Jesus is saying, listen, it's not about you. It's not about how small or how big you think you are because you're inadequate. I'm inadequate, but Christ can work in us and praise the Lord, he can work through us. And he was testing these, these men. I wonder today how God is testing our faith. Maybe it's financially for you. Maybe it's a health situation Maybe it's irritating people in your life. Maybe God is stretching you in, in some way. But no matter what you're going through in life, and no matter what your need is, no matter what test you're facing, Christ has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised to bring you through. And you know what? He's going to not only bring you through it, but he's going to make you stronger for it. As James tells us, as we go through these trials and difficulties, Christ is going to, to make us perfect and tire, wanting nothing. No doubt that day when Philip broke that bread and began to pass it around, and Andrew took that fish and began to pass it around, and at the end of the day, I can picture them gathering up all the fragments in those boxes, looking at each other and saying, why do we doubt? Why did we doubt? There's been many situations in my life where I've questioned God and he's brought me through it. And I think, why did I doubt? He's faithful. He's adequate. He can take care of anything that I'm facing. And not only that, he's using that to help me grow and help to strengthen my faith. Now as we finish up verses 14 and 15, we see the view and the attitude of the multitudes and their view of Christ. Verse 14, the Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. He is the prophet as a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 when the Lord uh, thy God promised that he will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me, Unto him ye shall hearken. And this is Moses speaking. And he says, According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God and Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet among whom their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. They, they looked at Jesus, and they saw what he did, and they said, this is the one. Their mind went back to Deuteronomy. This is the prophet. But then notice Christ's understanding and his response in verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Christ did not come to be a king from their perspective. 
He did not come to set up a kingdom here on this earth and, and to give them freedom from the Roman government, but he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life a ransom. He came to do the Father's will. He came to die for our sin. Oftentimes, Christ would say, my time has not yet come. It's not time for me to be revealed. It's not time for me. And he knew that it wasn't time for him to be set up as a king. It wasn't time for him to go to the cross. But, you know, one interesting thing. These people saw what Christ did, and they said, this is the one that God sent. He's the prophet. In one year's time, Christ is going to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and they're going to say, praise the Lord, Hosanna, and they're going to shout praises to him. And just a few days later, these same people... And those people that were shouting praise to him are going to say, crucify him. Crucify him. It's amazing how quickly we forget. Even as Christians, we, forgot, we forget often the blessings of salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. So when we're going through a difficulty or a trial, we become bitter and angry. Why is this happening to me? Don't, doesn't God know who I am? I've served God my whole life, and I come from a family that serves God. Why, why am I going through this? And we forgot God's blessings. We forgot his instruction. That, hey, we're going to go through some things in life, and God's going to use that for our benefit and our blessing. But don't forget, when we're going through those testings and trials, he's standing right there. Philip, Philip, I'm the one that can take care of it. Why are we doubting? Andrew, listen, I can take nothing and create this world. Surely I can take some fishes and some bread and feed all of these people. Don't, don't you realize who I am? Don't you realize who you've been following, who you serve? And you know, it's easy to judge the disciples. Like, how did they not know? I mean, how did they have that mindset or attitude? And why didn't they understand and yet we find ourselves doing the same thing when we're going through testings or trials. My friend, I promise you, God is going to work in your life. Maybe you're going through some testing today. God's trying to make you more like Jesus Christ. He's trying to help your faith grow. Maybe he's trying to show you, he's trying to reveal your faith to somebody else in your life. Maybe he just wants to be reassured in his own heart of your faith. But testing is going to come but God will always see us through it.